Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard Creative Team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. All right, so today we are welcoming back to the show Steve Gianetti. The Gianettis are a celebrated husband and wife design duo. You may know their collection of books, Patina Style, Patina Farm, Patina Living, and Patina Homes. Or perhaps you read Brooks. Gian- Brooke Gianetti's cult favorite blog, Velvet and Linen. Back in 2019, we had Brooke and Steve on the show. They had just released their second book, Patina Living, and we talked all about their home in Ohio, California. Well, the family has made some big, big moves in the last four years, including bringing their three children into the design fold. And today, in part one of a two-part series, we're speaking with Steve and his son, Nick, all about what's happening in the Gianetti universe. So, Steve and Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Yes, happy to be here. So, okay. I, I think that anyone who's a design fan is probably familiar with your work, work, Steve, because, as I mentioned, you have four books. Your wife has a just fabulous blog that she did for many, many years. And you have a design business. You've got now a a big move, which we're going to talk about. I don't want to give it away. But um, if you could kind of give everyone just a little quick synopsis about um, yourself and the origin of the Pratina brand for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with your work. Well, I've been an architect for 30, 40 years, something like that. 30 years, probably 35 years. And the patina stuff started when we started talking to our our book agent, Jill Cohen, about writing a book. What happens is you do things, you design kind of from your gut for quite a while. And then at some point people ask you, well, what is this all about? And we began to talk to each other on our morning walks to try to figure out what was the common thread that occurred amongst all our work. And we realized that it was patina. It was this idea that uh, things get better with age and age naturally. And being connected to nature and having this idea that natural materials are better really started to clarify our vision of it. It's it's always a good idea as a designer to, to sort of think about why you're doing it because it, it it creates a, uh, a consistency among the work that isn't necessarily stylistic. So our projects or my projects don't look like each other. They're in response to the client's desires. I'm really a filter on the world for them to, 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 to have this indoor outdoor, to have this flow. And that's where Patina came from. And, and just having conversations like this with people like you sort of clarifies things, you know, makes you, well, where, where does that come from? It makes you actually think about it, which has been nice. You didn't have some master plan of like the patina brand is going to be this. It just sort of evolved. Uh, it yeah. just sort of evolved. Yeah. Um, when I started doing architecture, I didn't really have a master plan at all. But Brooke is a, more of a master planner than I am. So as she got more and more involved in the social media world and we started doing projects together and I was connected more to her uh She's not a trained designer. So I was connected to her just emotional connection to things she loved. So it made it easier for me to go back to that and get out of my 
into my monkey brain and out of my school brain to try to understand what are the things that I really like and how does it connect to people and how does all that stuff work? Because I can be a little too analytical with it, just being architect, because that's kind of what we have to do. But it was always nice to sort of drop back into the emotional connection with everything with her. So, okay, when we spoke last, y'all had built your home in California. You'd been an architect in Santa Monica, raised your family there for many years. And then you bought this property and built this incredible farm. So can you kind of tell people a little bit about Patina Farm and sort of where that project came from? It's part of that idea of, of being more connected to nature. We lived in Santa Monica on a little 50 by 150 lot. Brooke all of a sudden got the itch to get chickens, to tear up our front yard and put in a vegetable garden. Nick was little at the time, and he was involved in it, helping to plant the front. I mean, it was a little, you know, front garden. When people walked down the street, everybody had lawns, and we had this crazy vegetable garden in the front yard. And the more Brooke did that, and the more the kids got involved with doing that, the more she wanted more of that in her life. So we started with chickens in the side yard, and then all of a sudden, she said, I think I need more space. And so we went from 50 by 150, we started, I was doing a job up in Ojai, which is about, you know, 90 minutes north of, Cal of uh, LA where we lived. And we uh, thought, well, oh, that looks cool. There's a little town there. It has everything we want. It's beautiful. We went up there uh, thinking we were going to look for a lot. And uh, I think the second lot we looked at, I walked onto it and said, yeah, this is it. And we bought it. And then we thought we were going to you know, wait and retire there. But our daughter was getting a little bit sick of LA. Nick was up for the adventure because he was, where were you in high, high school, Nick? Or second year of high school, first year of high school, something like that. When we moved to Ohio? Yeah. 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 And so it was, everybody seemed to be up for the adventure to just make a move. And we have a tendency to just do stuff rather than kind of wait around and think about it that much. So we built the house and moved up to Ohio, And then we started getting into gardens and we started getting into animals and we got cows and uh, donkeys and sheep and goats and all that kind of filled up this five acre parcel in Ojai. And we, we ended up just sort of creating a new life up there. And the idea was we could build anything we wanted. I was doing a lot of traditional houses at the time and we had started getting into uh, Belgian design you know, all that kind of Axel Vavord and all these guys. And we had, we'd gone to Belgium and visited. And so we, we, we came up with this the idea of taking the Ojai architecture and uh, Spanish architecture and um, the architecture of the agricultural buildings and combining it together to create sort of a new thing. And that became Patina Farm. And in the, if you build it, they will come moment, a lot of people saw it, a lot of people liked it, and we ended up doing a, a lot of stuff like that. And that's the subject of your book, Patina Farm. If anyone hasn't seen it, you absolutely, I mean, it is, it's spectacular, which leads me to my next question. Why in God's name would you leave that gorgeous piece of property and move? Because that's what you've done. So tell everybody like, you know, what's what the, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? Everybody thought we were crazy. Oh my God, it's such a nutty thing. Well, Brooke has this, uh, you'll have to ask her about this thing, but she has these like premonitions or ideas, you know, of, of stuff she wants to do. I was built, I, uh, I had a client who visited Patina Farm and kind of loved it. 
And he was doing, uh, I was working with an uh, interior designer at the time, and he was doing a house for this client or was starting to talk about a house for this client in Leapers Fork, Tennessee, where we ended up moving. So I come flying out here and it, it's beautiful landscape. It looks like the Codswolds, you know, rolling hills and trees and old farms and this charming little town with a music venue and all kinds of stuff. So I would come and hang out and stay at an Airbnb in town and go have uh, uh, pork, pulled pork and listen to country music, you know, and I need to hold my phone up and show Brooke, hey, look what's going on. This place is really cool. And so she came back a couple times and, and it, after a while, we, we came back a few times and it just be, began to feel more like home than home did. Even though we didn't have a house here, there was something about this place that really appealed to us. People are lovely. The landscape's beautiful. It doesn't get super cold. It gets hot and muggy in the summer. Um, but Ojai isn't, you know, a garden spot when it's 110 degrees. So we just had a sense that um, she had it also had an itch for more space. So we had five acres there and we have a hundred here. Oh so we gosh. could buy a whole, we could buy a whole valley. So our, our lot's a mile deep and about a half a mile wide. And it's in the middle of a can uh, valley and it's surrounded by forest with these rolling meadows going through. And so we started to think, wouldn't our cows really think that was cool to get let loose in a meadow or the sheep or the donkeys? So it absolutely seemed crazy. You know, we're going to leave here. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think we can do it. I think we can. Okay. <laughs> so we uh, we went shopping for land. We, we bought this place that had an 1850s log cabin on it. It's a little 1,400 square foot house, but... The shell of it, where I am right now, is this uh, little thing from 1850. And, you know, I watched, what, what's that show, 1893? What's that show where these people were in the Old West? The and it, Yellowstone? The Yellow, yeah, the Yellowstone yeah. spinoff. And yeah. it was like, this is where they came from, you know, Tennessee. And so we started thinking to ourselves, what, you know, can we kind of build a new life here? I mean, they left to go to, you know, wherever, we're, but we're coming here. And can we sort of tie into the history of this place and really make something cool. And the more we looked at it, and then when we found this land, it was like, okay, that's it. You know, Brooke too, took a couple of steps on it and said, okay, this is what we're getting. And so we bought it. And we just decided, we thought it was going to be three years before we moved. We'd hang on to it for a while, we'd visit, blah, blah, blah. And then one day she comes to me and she said, no, I think we got to do it now. I think we got to move now. I said, why we had a plan? <laughs> we had this master plan. We weren't going to do it. Yeah, we're going to do it now. Okay, well, we're putting the house for sale in the spring. Okay, okay, here we go. And off we go. We sold the house in a day and uh, rented back for a while and uh, re renovated our cabin. And now we're doing all the rest of the stuff. And so you got the whole family to move. Well, we didn't quite get the whole family to move. Okay. Yeah. Oh, the animals, the animal family. The an <laughs> and did you bring all the animals? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We loaded them up in these giant uh, trucks that they used to move show horses, you know, nice trucks, and loaded them up one day, uh, put them on all the two big semi trucks, and drove them. They, you know, they left, and we hopped on an airplane and came out here, and then we met them 
by the freeway because they couldn't get up to the land because it was that the roads were too small. So we had all these local cowboys help us get them onto smaller trucks and then bring them to the land. It was wild. So, you know, if a cow would have gotten loose, it'd been right on the freeway. You know, it would be like, you know, cow loose on the freeway. So, That's so hard. we brought him here and it was, I still remember I've got the video of all these guys, all the animals getting out of these, of these trucks going from Brown, California to this green grass of Tennessee and just like hopping off and going, oh man, it's heaven. <laughs> so they had the same, they had the same feeling about the place that we did. <laughs> did it take even longer to get them there? Cause they were like, I'm going to eat everything on the way there. <laughs> yeah. Grass. yeah, no, they were, they just loved it. The, the donkeys are getting kind of fat, but everybody else is doing pretty good. <laughs> so, but it's been, it's been pretty great. And then Nick, uh, we, as much as we tried to get him to come, he's a L.A. boy. He he's, he lives in West Hollywood in a lovely place and, you know, has got the perfect designer life over there. We got our daughter, Layla, to move. Uh, so she lives on an airstream down by the uh, river. There's a little creek that runs by the front of our property. She goes, like, takes a walk in the air in the uh, creek in the morning, you know, gets kind of sits down and gets the does her cold plunge in the natural creek and lives in the airstream and, you know, takes us a couple of cats over by her. It's cool. And our son, Charlie, he's, he's an LA guy too. He's so he's in, he's doing a clothing design thing. But even with Layla in the airstream, it's like, we, we talk to her, like we, we can have something on the, on the property for you, like a little cabin, anything you want. She's like, no, the airstream is just lovely. I like being that close to the outdoors. It's like, wait, we'll, we'll do anything. You can design it yourself. Yeah. She's like, no, I think, I think it's nice to just be like a one door away from just like being able to walk in the creek. That's amazing. Okay. So Nick, tell Okay. You go to high school in, in Ohio, you go off yes. to college. Tell us like sort of, um, what, where you were during all of this and sort of how like the whole you know, oh, high move and the the um, the creative, I think, world that your parents had for you all influenced your direction as far as a career. So I think it starts a little bit earlier than that. I think that like one of the quirks of being in a family like this is that all of your like family vacations growing up end up becoming like sort of design vacations. So whether it's like we would go to Venice and instead of doing like the touristy things, we would do like, if there was like an exhibit at the Fortuny Museum, we'd be doing that. And we'd be like looking at fabrics. No and gondola going to tours. No <laughs> gondola tours. It was a lot, it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fabrics growing up. And then, so we also did this trip to Belgium and like really formational, like trip to Belgium where we got to, well, this is well, they were coming up with that idea, the reference that, that my dad was making. But we, so we all go to Belgium and it's a long flight. And so we do this whole thing. We go on the long flight. I'm, we're all exhausted. Um, and the first thing we do after we get on the plane is go and go to what is like the, the best place for uh, hardware on the planet. Just stunning, beautiful. I cannot appreciate it because I am like, 13 years old and exhausted. I like can recognize that it's beautiful, but just exhausted beyond belief. And I think that's sort of like that era of my life is that like I'm receiving all of this design through osmosis 
And it took me until like later in my life to like reflect on it and become cognizant of how much it's influenced my life. Like on that trip, we went to um, Axel Verwood's Canal and his castle and just stunning, stunning beauty and like just design mastery that I've uh, has had just like an incomprehensible amount of influence on the way I look at the world design. So then we do that whole trip and then my family then starts talking about like, I think we want to move to Ojai and I go, okay, cool. I have a life here in LA and they're like, all right, cool, whatever. And then they moved to Ojai. We all went up to Ojai together and uh, they, we started building the house and like, as the house started coming together, like you more and more understand like the, the picture that they, the vision that they had becomes clearer and clearer. So like, where I immediately saw like a big old plot of land, they could already see their full life complete and finished out there. Um, and I think it took me like a little bit of time to really see the vision that they had. But once it was there, I mean, it was the most amazing house in the world. Like I know that we talk about like Patina Farm and the book and all that, but like it is like my childhood home. I do have like a lot of nostalgia for it. And like, I, I think it's this, these like crazy ideas of like things that seem like very out there are really just like a series of smaller steps along the way. And that like dreaming and the ability to dream up something and then execute on it and see it like built in front of you has become like very formational along the way I view it. The other thing that was funny, Nick, you realized when you went to college and you stay in these dorm rooms that you didn't realize how ugly, what is what was it that you told us? Oh yeah, I, it's just like I had never lived in a place as that was ugly growing up. Oh that had been gosh. like, <laughs> that had been like, like, like that like, wasn't designed. College dorm rooms are like interior design terrorism. It's just like, <laughs> I feel like set up to ruin your life. And so we would get to a dorm room, and then um, I'm like, my mom and dad would be like, "There's got to be some way we can we can fix this." My dad is like, walks in, is already rearranging furniture. He's like, "There's got to be a way to make this layout work." My mom is like, "All right, so." what do we need? What do we need? New lighting. New, and it's like, as we were walking in there, I'm like barely like putting my stuff down. They're already re redecorating the room. Yeah. It, was, it makes sense. Like you, good design for you was just an everyday sort of thing. And then you finally enter this space where it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can see how that would be jarring. Yeah. Like I what's up with this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is really incredible what, what you were saying about taking this like huge vision. I mean, truly huge and, and um, ambitious vision and breaking it into smaller steps. That is something that I, yeah, you, you know, Steve, you and Brooke have done so well and so many times that that is like an amazing sort of lesson for your kids. Wow. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and that was actually part of it. It was when we built Patina Farm, and we lived in uh, Santa Monica, which was a lovely spot. And, you know, most of our friends that we had at the time still live there, you know. But it was, can you dream up something cooler and then execute on it, right? And so part of it was showing our kids that anything is possible, right? You just take a leap into who knows where, and I've got to figure out a way to to take a business that was working in an office and make it completely remote. Have everybody, did, you know, nobody was doing that at the time, but I said, okay, I got an iPhone. I can 
this. I can FaceTime. I think I can do it. I think I don't need to work with all my people. I'll have everybody distributed and just connect them up through the internet. And this was, what was it, 10 or 2010 or something like that, you know, when we were doing it. It was sort of just after the iPhone came out and I said, yeah, I can see this. I can see a path to this. And so you're, you're always sort of looking at the technology and seeing how that can help you do your job and make your life better. Because I remember when Brooke was blogging about the plans that, because, you know, part of her blog was talking about your concepts for the, the farm. And like, I remember, you know, uh, sh that bathtub with the glass wall. Glass wall. Yes, which is so iconic. Um, so, okay, let's get back, Nick, to your, okay, so you, you go off to college, you're in this uh, design hellscape <laughs> yes. um, of your dorm room. Where, how, how did, how did design sort of become, I guess, more like your career? And how did you join the, the fray of the Patina brand? And what were you doing in college, Nick? You were doing a math, weren't you? Or something ridiculous? Uh, I was doing economics, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which like, which sounds like a lot of math. I think that, that I think that a misconception about economics is that it's all about the math. Economics is really just large scale relationships between people. And that was kind of the understanding that like I was trying to get at. But then I took a class in that uh, at NYU where I was going at the time that was about um, urban economics, which is kind of the, the economics of urban design and like rents and all that. And I talked to that professor who's a great guy. Um, but I was talking to that professor and he's like, I think that you don't really care about economics. I think you care about the urban design of this. He says we have a, a program here at NYU that really studies in urban design or urban planning and kind of the history of all of that. And so he's like, you should like go and talk to some of the people in that program. And so I go and I talk to the people in that program. A lot of them are like really like working architects at like some of the, the biggest firms in the world who work on just spectacular projects. I mean, like the, the like master planners for the Met or like the city of Shanghai and people with like really incredible pedigrees that like otherwise you would not get access to. So I go, I talk to them and then eventually decide to join that as my major, take those classes that are just hugely formational and like the way that I think about design. I think these people like the fact that they are like actively working means that they have a really hands-on understanding of what the world looks like when you're have like a significant effect on the way that people live. And so that became like a, an important part of my life. And then so after college, I had worked um, a short time for Plain English, the kitchen company, uh, a, a design gallery out there called Deanston Daughter that is pretty spectacular. And then first dips, I was uh, kind of a liaison between um, the company and interior designers working on programs that would like help the company work with them. And then in 2020, I moved back to Ojai and kind of felt like there was something missing from my life. Started helping out my dad with like 3D modeling because I had done some of it at, and learned how to do it at school. And so that kind of became the back door for me to get back into design. And, you know, we already have this kind of shorthand that uh, allows, lets us talk about these kind of things that we already know about design. So we have all this shared experience from my childhood that we can like reach back on, be like, 
oh, remember this detail at this house that we went to when we were in Belgium? And I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. I, I can execute on whatever thought that he was talking about. So now you're working on like des- the design projects for clients or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he's but doing like- both architecture and interior design for, for us. At a certain point, we started doing everything in 3D models. I used to draw it all. And then we started building 3D models because the clients loved it and everybody could see it. And then Nick was really good at building like precise pieces of furniture in 3D or, you know, doing the buildings or, you know, building a Swedish cabinet and putting the correct finish on it and dropping it into a 3D model. So we started doing that sort of high tech, low tech thing, you know, where you be building 3D models of Belgian antiques, you know, and popping them into things. So he just became like super valuable with that because I could, I could even say, Nick, just furnish this place. You know, we work with interior designers who weren't giving us a lot of information. And I had this big, cool model of a cool house, but it was empty and they weren't, they weren't going to pick furniture for a long time. So I said, Nick, here's the interior design you're working with. Go look at all the stuff they do and pretend you're them and furnish the house in model form. (laughs) Just so I could make sure everything fit, you know, Mm -hmm. and he would do it. It was great. It was cool. That's that's I I will be very surprised when I show up at the house and it doesn't look like Nick's design because that's (laughs) the thing I've got built in my head. What what do designers think of that? Do the clients ever say like, well, but we really liked that thing. How you did there. I think for the most part, the designers are okay with it. I think it like lets them, uh, lets the client understand the scale of the space. Mm -hmm. And I think most clients, most designers are like, uh, we have our own ideas for this. But it's like it, we're never like it, we're never good design, designing to the point of it being distracting. It's not like I'm putting in all of the individual little details that are like the personality of these designers. I'm really just getting a picture of the kind of scale that they do mm-hmm. and the overall like sizing and massing of the the thought that they're going to be putting into the house and kind of trying to produce a reflection of that for them. And so usually even the thing that they end up doing ends up being like relatively close in like scale, but the details are all different. Yeah, that's got to be incredibly helpful to get through and figure out the flow of space and to make sure that that the flow of the architecture and the flow of the furniture is is going to work. And I love that you guys have a shorthand (laughs) and can just say furnish it and it's and it's there. Yeah, that was uh, it was it was an interesting thing because I always picture the houses finished, right? Furnished when I, you know, very early on in my head, I walk around a house and it's done. Uh, Often before I even draw much of it, I can walk into the room. I see furniture, I see lighting, I see everything. But, you know, I can't do that to the designers. Say, well, here's what I would do. You know, it's like a power move that I can't, you know, should pull off. But, you know, I can get Nick to help and say, oh, I had my son. He just came up with a bunch of stuff to put just for scale. Don't worry about it. It's just for scale. But because he worked at first dibs and he and he just has this kind of a crazy photographic memory for all things interiors, he could he can uh, look at a, a designer's work, figure out their vibe, sort of like do a good first pass at it. And it's been it's been really helpful from that standpoint to to see what what it is he can pull off. Yeah, the other thing that's been helped for when I was working at First Dibs is that you get a real understanding of where everything comes from. So if 
I look at an inspirer's work, I can usually pick out what galleries, vendors, et cetera, et cetera, that they've been using. And so it helps to be able to like go and just grab from whatever vendor that they've been looking at, like pulling their specs to put in the model and stuff like that. So if like they have a piece of lighting that they use in every single one of their projects, I can pretty safely like grab that and be like, we'll just have it thrown in and be like, okay, that looks great. That's awesome. And very, very smart. Yes. To remember all of that too. Ooh. So, okay, let's get back to Leaper's Fork. How, you know, you you talk about this cabin. So I imagine you did a big renovation of that. What? How did that project differ from your Patina Farm project? And, you know, because your farm in California and your farm, farm in Tennessee, like those are vastly different locations and styles. And, you know, was it challenging to sort of put yourself in a, a new headspace? It is. Um the, the tricky part is, you know, I was in California for a long time and sort of knew in my head or in my heart what the style was. And you sort of had a sense of it. In Tennessee, I was always sort of in and out, you know, just on trips. And I didn't really have a sense of all the materiality and the building types. And what's, a, what's the log cabin? What are the old 1850s log cabins really look like in Tennessee? What do they do with barns? What size are they? What shape are they? What kind of overhang? What kind of windows do they do? What's the eave look? How do the materials go together? How do the, you know, what's the scale of the windows? So there's all these things that you almost have to um, get in your head by osmosis a little bit to understand what the world is that you're, in, you're going to inhabit. And so that took a little while. We'd actually, you know, we actually designed a main house for this property that we're not going to build now because we fell in love with the cabin. You know, we had a, a house up on the hill that we were going to do. Uh, but it started off as a Cotswold cottage because we just love the Cotswolds. And I thought, well, this sort of feels like the Cotswolds, you know, out here with the rolling hills. But once we got out here, we realized it just wasn't the thing to do. It wasn't, didn't feel right. We actually ended up even redesigning that house to make it more look more Tennessee, like the old Tennessee 18, like turn of the century stuff, 1900s stuff. But then, you know, probably two days after we moved into the cabin, Brooke looks at me and goes, wow, I really love it here. It's great. We're going to just stay here. So, you know, it's <laughs> 1,400 square feet. It's got this crazy little bedroom with a little part of its tall ceiling and a little part of it's a seven-foot ceiling. And so we ended up, we're going to add on to it a little bit to give her a bit more closet and nicer bathroom. But... Uh, it's also right in the middle where we're looking out these these back windows. If you look at um, her velvet and linen blog, there's some pictures of it, the kitchen and looking out. And so we look out our back windows and we see all the animals, the goats, the sheep, our four Anatolian uh, guard dogs. We see the cows grazing in the field. Everything is right out the window now. So it's that's what that's what convinced her. Because we were really, you know, you're really right next to everybody. And this idea that you're connected to the land in such a unique way really made it, really made it interesting. And my challenge to take this 1850s cabin, which sort of felt like this tiny little dark space, and just cut it open as much as I possibly could to connect it to the garden and put in steel windows and, you know, sort of play the game. It's a little bit old fashioned, but a little bit new. Uh, was was really a, a fun little trick. Like, how much can I get away with and make it happen? Were you surprised, Nick, when you saw it? Yeah, because I had seen it really early on, like 
pre all of the changes when and it was a it's the cabin. thing <laughs> no it was it was a cabin were there possible and so <laughs> yeah like you get in there and yes. you're like there's there's literally like what are, like, what are these people doing <laughs> i i'm just thinking like what have mom and dad gotten themselves into <laughs> like they're not building the main house um what what is this thing gonna look like and now i'm like oh it's, it's a great place to live this seems this seems lovely i'd live here I was like, if you if you drop this in, in my zip code, I'd be I'd be here all day. But yeah, it was just, uh, just it's just amazing seeing them work. It's that that really clear vision from the, the beginning. It's like you aim the compass at like, hey, we have we want to get to this point, and everything else just comes in line as you're working towards it. And um, like my my mom always says that she has, like sometimes you realize that the compass is pointed in the wrong place. Like in this case, it was that big main house. And then you kind of just adjust where you're looking and you hit on a vision that you're trying to get to. And I think that that is kind of a uh, formational piece of wisdom for me is that like, it, I don't have to be rigid into where I'm pointing as long as I'm pointing in a direction that I think it's like the life that I want. I think design is the same way. I think a lot of when you're like working on a house for a client, you point at a house at the end and you hope that that's the house that they want to build, but sometimes they change their mind and you have to adjust a little to the left or the right. And eventually that house kind of materializes in front of you after you've done all the framing and the drywall. I mean, the other thing, it's still, I mean, because part of what's happening is it's not only this house, we're also building about a 4,000 square foot, uh, Brooke calls it the shed, but it's a pottery studio and an entertainment space and an apartment and a downstairs art studio and a greenhouse, uh, uh, a large greenhouse and a, a bloomery and uh, all kinds of stuff. And then that's like right across from the front of our place. It almost creates a courtyard outside our space. And it's the idea that she wanted to have a more forward facing, uh, something she could share with the public, the people that have followed her forever. So she just wants to have classes and events and things here on the farm, things that we could never do in Ojai. So it's like, you're not just building a house, you're building a, uh, a sort of set piece for all these experiences that you want to have. And so it's like, well, what are we, what are we doing? What are we doing here? <laughs> We're going to have, okay, I can do that. We're going to have classes for six people doing pottery. And then right next door, this big party thing with a bar and everybody can hang out and do a talk and cook giant dinners and have all the kids over or have big groups over. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. So we just kind of, you design the experiences before you design the house. That's an amazing shift to think about, you know, creating a community space on your property that is three times the size of your living space. Where at Patina Farms, it was, you know, really all about your family and about about that. You're really expanding your community and family. That's really wonderful. Yeah, the um, you, you'll talk to Brooke about it, but you know about Patina Home and Garden. That's the store. So right in the middle of Leaper's Fork, she's got this store because part of the idea of the move was to build community because we didn't really have that much in Ojai and she really wanted to have that. That was a big piece of the puzzle that she wanted to do. And so this place had that opportunity, didn't have the crazy building codes and the homeowners association, all the stuff that you know comes along in California. So this place had the ability to be able to create that sense of community and work with other people who could uh, help us see it. So we've got, you know, 
people that we've met who help with who help with the animals, who tell us about forest pigs, who tell us about different kinds of birds that eat the insects on the property. These crazy guinea fowl that roam the property that look like little mini turkeys that squawk and run all over the property. Nick sees all that stuff. Just it's insane. All the animals that are everywhere. Maybe yeah. this is why he's in Cal California. That could be. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, the way you share your lifestyle to people that are open and, you know, this view on the world and your space in it is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing that you guys are doing and allowing people to experience it and maybe change their perceptive perception on what they want in their life and the way they want to live is just really beautiful. So even with guinea fowl <laughs> or guinea fowl. guinea fowl are cool I, got <laughs> I have to say though every i have not been but like when i was reading up on the store and stuff all i could think was schitt's creek where this beautiful store came in did you did either of y'all watch schitt's creek yeah i saw schitt's creek yeah you know when he opens up the really cute store in their little town and it's anyway that was what i pictured <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly nick are you the kid are you the son Oh, absolutely. yes, yes. <laughs> Ooh, David. Um, anyway. Yeah, but that was, that's been fun to, to make a store because that came up as a complete surprise. Mm -hmm. It was sometimes you've got a plan, you've got it all darted out, and then somebody just tosses this thing in the mix. Hey, you guys want a store? You're going to open it right around the same time within a month of when you actually move into town. You're going to open the store mm -hmm. and we, and this is like two months before we're moving, we're doing all the stuff and Brooks back at her desk ordering, you know, hundreds of little items for the store. That, that one I thought was crazy too. I legitimately but. feel like you must have 50 hours in your day where the rest <laughs> of us have 24 because the way you guys, yeah. has, it's amazing. Or maybe you don't sleep. Do you sleep? <laughs> no, Brooke, uh, Brooke gets a, she gets a lot of stuff done. She is, uh, she, she can manage a lot of things. She's at the store now doing who knows what. I'm just sitting here at the house. I want to know more about the cabin because, you know, she did, she put, you, you mentioned she had like a, um, on her blog, you can see the before and like the after it feels, it's, it's so funny because it, the, the after of the cabin feels very similar to patina farm i mean you know it's different but it's not that different and and i just would have never gotten there from the before so can you tell us about like what changes aesthetically you made to the cabin to give it this vibe that you know it, it's interesting so there's it part of it was we opened it up a lot we opened up the walls so everything connected. So all of a sudden you saw the whole 1400 square feet almost from any vantage point. So everybody, no matter how big a house you have, you live in one little room, you live in the kitchen and the breakfast room and the family room, right? Everybody does that. I don't care how big a house I make, you know, everybody lives in a small space. So you don't really need the space. You just need it to be thought about in a nice way. And then we always think about things like a palette. So, the old logs were just stunning, beautiful color, hand yoon, 1850, perfect. So we kept that. Everything else was junk, right? We had a horrible fireplace, had a beadboard on the ceilings that looked lame. It was bad doors. And so we just took everything out that wasn't great and just came back in with the 
plaster walls from Patina Farm with floor to ceiling windows, with you know the linen drapes, with the the beautiful wood floors. Um, I made new doors out of old uh, eighteen inch wide planks from the barn, from the old barn on the property. When I just put them on these little pivots. So I would take and say, okay, I can't put a normal door in this from Home Depot. That'd look terrible. You know, and I didn't want to go, we had used all the antique doors in the other house, but it's like, how do you take the essence of the place? And that was old 18 inch wide barn doors, barn planks, just one inch thick planks. And then I just hooked them together and pivoted them. So you created these, these little moments and just kind of quieted the whole background down and just opened it up enough. And you could and put in the right windows. It got the proportions right. And it just transformed the place. It just made it really, really lovely. And it's it, it's really cool because people feel like it's the old house and are just stunned, you know, when they walk inside and feel how big it is and how much it connects and flows and you view the backyard and everything. I mean, it was neat. Nick saw it when he, you know, came here last time. And then you fill it full of like amazing Swedish antiques and old stuff. I mean, you know, when we're designing our own house, we just bring all the furniture in. We just take our favorite pieces and just bring it in. And we found this great sofa at Round Top, this crazy leather sofa. It was all half ripped apart. It's right, right in the living room. Looks amazing. So you just bring stuff in and, you know, just see how it all works. Do you think that's a mistake? Um, you mentioned the doors and windows. Do you think that's a mistake that people make sometimes? Like, if the windows and doors can totally transform your whole house, then like, do you think people are uh, not as thoughtful as maybe they could be when um, when building homes and the, putting the number sort of one stuff? the number one thing on on windows is they want to go almost all the way down to the floor. Like my windows are six inches above the floor along the whole back of the house. Because you can see outside and see the ground and it connects it. If these windows had 30 inch sills, like most windows have, you know, they're almost like doors. They almost go all the way to the ground. And, you know, so low that our little tiny dogs hop up on the windowsills and bark it like the sheep out in the backyard. You know, they can see out. And there's this, there's this connection between the indoors and outdoors that is different when the windows go all the way down to the ground. And then when the proportions of the mullions that height to width is kind of consistent throughout the whole house. It makes it feel like there's actual intention, like bad spec houses. Some are square, some are horizontal, some are vertical. You really want all that stuff to kind of share the same DNA is that's the way nature designs things. Proportions are consistent throughout the organism. If you don't have that, you lose it. It just looks like a mess. Old houses did it. But those kinds of things are really, really important to kind of work through the, the idea. It's, it's almost primal. There are guys that visit just the workers who've lived here for their whole lives, who come to this place and go, man, this place feels like, you know, it feels wonderful. There's just something about it that connects to people. And that's what I'm always trying to do is to find that sort of secret sauce that makes it just connect to, and feel and, and has like a strong emotional connection. And I could do four things different and kill that if I didn't, you know, if I didn't, if I change proportions of things, it's all, it's this weird little alchemy that you need to do to get everything to happen. How do you know when it's just right? Like if you're working on a new project and you haven't quite figured out the, you know, 
the recipe yet? How do you know when it's right? It's a gut feel. It's one of those things I learned from Brooke is that you're just, you just feel it. I feel it back here in the back of my head, in the, in my back, you know, I could walk into a space. It's nice now when I'm, we're building the models, cause I can share that vision with people. When I used to just sketch them, I would just draw them and do it. But with building the models, you can go, yeah, that's not quite right. I can, this can be better, you know? And then all of a sudden things sort of bother you less and less like, oh, that piece isn't right. Oh, that doll's too tall or the light's not coming in right. And you just, you just pick away at the stuff that bothers you. You just, you know, tweak all the things that aren't right till everything's right. The Elon has, is it's the be less wrong approach. You know, you're going to make mistakes. You just have to make less and less of them as you go. And that's how you do houses. You just, you know, keep, keep tweaking and keep fixing and you keep refining along the way. And, you know, you'll feel what it's right. Mm hmm. Okay, this it just occurred to me, but do you like do you see a world where we use like um you know like virtual reality and headsets to like walk through your houses? And we do it already. You do already? That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, we had a we had a client that built a house in Wyoming and they live in like the Pacific Palisades. And we took them into virtual reality and got them to walk through their house. Um but yeah, it helps for when like your clients are um building a house somewhere far away from where they live mm -hmm. and they need to get like a real idea of what it's like. I, I think it's really funny because like it obviously doesn't look exactly real. Um, I think there's like a little bit of like an uncanny valley situation. Um, my mom always says it's dead around the eyes. <laughs> sure. um, but even then, like doing it in VR, it feels so real. We, um, we were doing it by a dad in there and he was like looking around and the way you kind of move around is like you can like point as like a little pointer and you teleport to where you're going and so you can teleport all over different places around the house and so he's doing that and you're holding these little controllers to help you teleport around and he goes he's like oh this is really cool and he's like all right, he's like, all right i'm done and he teleports himself to a table puts the controllers just drops them in the middle of the room because he had forgotten that he was in a virtual reality space. But yeah, it, it can feel very real. It really helps people see it. I think for like me and my dad, we, we kind of see these things complete in our heads. Um, but there's like a lot of clients just need like that extra kind of little piece and even, and they'll fill in the rest. They're like, oh, okay. I, I can see the kind of outline, the shape of what we're doing here. Like there's a shape to this that they really like. And then they're like, oh, but, and I can see like, oh, maybe this like, it, the, the floor is a little too shiny and I go, it'll be, whatever we want it to be. Right. We also on this, on this job in, um, in Jackson, it has a view of the Tetons, you know, this incredible property. And we made this little uh, video of it, you know, a, a sort of fly around that looked real with, you know, the lights going down and snow falling and all this kind of stuff. And then we put uh, the Yellowstone theme in the background and then sent it to the client. And what it was, was it just was like, Oh man, I really want to be there. It just, all of a sudden it was an emotional lock, right? Mm -hmm. Into this world that they wanted to create. I mean, this, this particular client was interesting because they had seen us make the move to Ojai and they were thinking about making a move from West Los Angeles to Wyoming and called us up, but they were old friends, but we hadn't spoken in a while, called us up and said, we need help doing this trying to figure out how to do it. You got, we saw you guys do it. We want to do it. How do you do it? You know, how do you, how do we like, there's a uncertainty or a fear or something. What, the way I always think about it is you have to 
a lot of people won't make that move because they're afraid, right? It's uncertain. Like, oh man, this is going to be horrible. Or I could go bad. So what you have to do is you have to build in your mind the a vision that pulls you so that you're pulled towards it and you have no choice but to do it. You need a, a future that's so compelling that you want to live in it. Because it's a pain to build a house and move and all that. But if you can build a future that's so compelling that you just need to be there, that's the key. Because then you're like, oh, this is fun. I, I'm going to end up in this place. This is great. Other than, oh, every decision is horrible. I don't know if this is the right move. You know, it's a different mindset that you need to do. Because, you know, we talk often with architects about light and how important that is to, you know, be able to capture the light in the home and how transformative it can be when you do it properly. And I wonder if that's something that the, you know, VR technology helps you understand, like, or do you already know that because you've been doing this so long, like how the light's going to work in the house? If you can, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can do it. I can, I can put it on a certain date at, uh, at, at a certain time and see the light crack across the room. But I sort of know what it's going to do just because I visualize it. But it's cool to be able to see which way it's hitting. There's a few tricks. It's like always get light on two sides of every room. Three sides of every room are better. You know, windows to the floor. There's a few things you can do if you get if even if you get the windows up near the ceiling, the light will bounce off the ceiling and give you a, a warmer glow. It'll just cause the softness to the whole space. But the VR stuff has been has been really good for that. And it's I mean, we build them in such detail that. There's fabric on the pillows and the draperies and mm -hmm. all the lighting and the finishes and everything like that. And it it's really helpful because, you know, when the house gets built, the the, the client is like, oh, yeah, this is this feels just like the model. Mm -hmm. Only it's usually like the scale is a little different. You know, there uh, the Jackson house felt bigger, the one in, mm -hmm. in Wyoming than they had in their head. So it made it even nicer. But yeah, the models, the model stuff is really interesting. And, and this yeah. new A.I stuff is going to be uh, transformative again, mm -hmm. change everything. So we're playing with that. Yeah. I don't really see the like appeal really of a, you know, like the Apple, what does it call the Apple vision? Just, I don't know. I want to be less connected, you know, I don't want to be more connected, but with something like a house project, it's, that sounds incredible to be able. That's going to be incredible. Like that. Yeah. that thing is both uh, so creepy that it scares me to death and I really want one. Yeah. yeah. So it's a little bit of both, but it's it's a transformative thing. I think it's sure. it's a little dangerous. You know, I see everybody when you go to the airport. Everybody's looking at their phones. They're never even looking up, right? Imagine that with all these headsets. Yeah. It'll that it's gonna be really dystopian. Mm -hmm. But in the right hands, it, you could create some incredible experiences with it. It's yeah. super cool. That was definitely one of the things I had noted on my. Um on my notes was just to talk about it because I know the connection with nature is so important for everything you do, but you also obviously are very advanced as well in technology. So that balance of living this connected to earth yet connected to, you know, what's going on is, is impressive. And I don't know how you balance it. I mean, it's not, you're not balancing, you're bouncing back and forth between the okay. worlds. Right. So we take a, a 40 minute walk with four big dogs, you know, up into the back of our property every morning and watch the sunrise, you know, along this path. And that's the thing that makes all the other stuff possible. It makes it possible to stare into a screen for a couple of hours trying to get something figured out. 
the idea that I used to draw on paper and have to scan stuff and keep track of all these rolls of plans. And now I draw everything on my iPad. Mm-hmm. It just made it so that I can be in an airplane. I can be sitting in a cafe. I can draw stuff on an iPad. I, I still use, I have the, the craziest setup. I have a, uh, my iPad with a T-square because I hate the computer programs. So I draw on the iPad with a T-square and a triangle and it, it works great because it's a, uh, it's like an endless piece of paper under my, under my desk that I can just scroll around and then copy and change scale. It's like, all of a sudden I got that idea. and was like, Oh, it's like a giant, which I had a bigger iPad. Oh, I don't need it. I just have to pretend there's a giant piece of paper under it. I can scroll around on, but it's a super cool system. It's been really cool. And then I just mark up 3d models. So uh, I'll we'll start a 3d model small enough. I just use a big one. Oh. And then I bought one on eBay. I bought one of these old little ones from the fifties. It's like a little Bayline thing. Uh-huh. And you just put it on a board. And I, I, it's so funny because I, I, uh, when I moved, I didn't want to bring all that paper with me. So I tossed it and just scanned everything. And now I, I read down and then I go try to draw on paper and I get, well, this is ridiculous. And then I just go right back <laughs> to the iPad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I never thought I would do it. Yeah. What a waste of time. And then I got to scan it and I got to keep track of it. I got to put it in a binder. If it's in the iPad, I have it forever. It's, yeah. Right, right. I love it. Well, we do have a question that we wanted your help answering. So if y'all are okay, we're going to switch to some, some dilemma, a dilemma. And um, I'll read it. I, I assume y'all had a chance to take a look. This is actually a great question for you because the, uh, the feel of the house and the pictures are seem right up your alley. So, okay. I'll read it and then we'll, we'll chat. Okay. So our question comes from Kelly and she says, hi ladies. Thank you so much for your amazing podcast. I feel like I found my people. Every time I listen, I have a design dilemma. Recently, my neighbor had a large tree removed that provided our family room with much appreciated shade from the bright and hot afternoon sun. My family room is now flooded with so much light. It can be uncomfortable from noon until evening. Not to mention it shows every streak of my glass door and every scuff on my wood floor. My question is, if I install drapes for the large French slider, must I also install them on the adjacent wall that has three casement windows to make it look balanced and put together? The three windows do not receive much light as they are north-facing and share a wall with an outdoor-covered patio. If I should install drapes for these windows, do they each need their own rod and panels, or could I act as one large... Could it act as one large unit and have a rod with two panels? Lastly, how should the rods be hung? I've found a dozen answers to this question on the internet, but value your opinion. I absolutely love natural light, but the hot afternoon sun in California can be brutal. And the comfort comfort of my family is of utmost uh, importance and a design consideration I need to make. Um, For reference, the French sliding door is west facing. Windows are three by four and a half. The room is 19 by 20. Ceilings are nine feet. The floor plan is open with a kitchen, dining, and living room all in the same general area. So, Steve, what do you what do you think? So, let me tell you one of my tricks. So, the, the trick is, I usually go back to people ask me questions like, like this all the time, and the first question you ask is, "Is it the right question?" Because like their comment, they'll come at me with an answer like, "Well, what color drapes should I have?" You know, or should I put drapes on these walls? But the problem is, the sun's coming in too much. There used to be a tree that fixed it is are the drapes even the right answer should i do like a willow cover outside of those doors 
to provide the same dappled soft light that I used to get from the drapes, you know, that I used to get from the neighbor's tree. So the first thing I do is actually think if you're solving the right problem, you know, we can solve the drape problem. You know, we know exactly what to do for drapes and, you know, we can think about that. But what you want to really do is say, we, we often at, at Patina Farm, we have these windows that had that same issue. And we built like a little lightweight iron uh, structure right outside of the door and then put willow fencing across the top of it. And you get the most lovely dappled light. It's, you'll see it in uh, Provence, uh, those little outdoor dining areas that you see in Provence by the places. But she's got a little, looks like there's a pool outside from looking at the picture. So I would just start with, am I solving the right problem? Right. And then move on from there. And then you go, yeah, beaded drapes on that thing. We could do, you know, drapes that are tall, almost to the ceiling. Maybe they have, you know, a natural linen or something like that. You want to always allow some light to come through or else it feels like you're sitting in the dark. How do you how do you play those different games? I mean, Nick, I think, talked about it or thought about, you know, what you'd actually do to that. Yeah, group. like you would do like shears and if you wanted to have something on those windows, if you felt like there was something missing, I, I would do just like a Roman mounted at the same height as your big drapes that you would do off the big window. Um, but yeah, like if you, if you listen to the problem that the question is having, it's, they mentioned like the streaks in the windows and like the things on the floor where like, no matter what window treatment that you put there, when it's open, you're going to see those things. But if you address it, from the outside, if you address the light coming in in the first place, you're then addressing maybe a, a concern that they actually have, where you're like picking at like, oh, the concern that you're referencing here isn't actually about window treatments. It's about the quality of the light in your home. And so I think that's like an important thing to address. But yeah, I think that you could just as easily do a sheer I mean, I, I, the, the other thing we do is if you have, you wouldn't necessarily have to put drapes on those skinnier windows, on those smaller windows yeah. on the side. We'd, yeah. we'd often do Roman shades above those just to get the kind of color of the drapes there. And then the mm -hmm. drape softening on the back would, would border that big window in the back because it's like five French doors or something mm -hmm. going out there. But like I said, I'm not sure that's going to solve, it'll, it'll be better. And you need like that translucent light because if she just has drapes that she closes, then the room's not going to be nice. So you need to solve the the light issue with it. Is okay. is the key? That's what she was saying. The light is the thing. Yeah, that's some great advice. But so think about what you can do outside to help the problem. But if she is, maybe she just wants some drapes. Either way, do we think she should do? You said shears. Does she do one long rod against along the whole span? Does she break it up? How many panels does she need? On the French door side, it's one long span. And then for those three little windows, okay. we would do Roman shades mounted at the same height okay. above each one. Um, okay. The same, the same fabric. fabric. You really want to create that. Length. That'll tie it all together. Because it's more decorative, because that's north facing, yeah. so they're not going to get light in there. And if you put tall drapes on a window, like that, it might just look funny or it's just going to feel like too much fabric in there. So there's something nice about the way that room flows between the kitchen and everything that you you don't want to over fabric it. So I wouldn't do all all that. I just give it a little touch of drapery. But I'd probably start with just the long drapes on the one side because that would probably be enough to get, get her what she wants. 
and the drapes the drapes would be nice to kind of soften the space because drapes also do a neat acoustical thing in a room they soften the sound mm-hmm. you know because it's not it's all it's light it's sound it's ambiance there's a lot of different things going on so that's how i would start the, the other thing we do i do often is i'll take the uh ipad take a picture and i'll just draw the drapes in open the mm-hmm. photos app to use the pencil and just you can just draw stuff over top of it so i'll often just redesign the room standing there on the ipad mm-hmm. you know you're just drawing right there at the at the time you could try all kinds of different things out and you'll see it you'll then you'll then you'll go back to what we were talking about in the beginning where you just feel it you don't need to be able to draw that great you can just say okay give me a color that's close to drapes and i'll draw some lines by it and that'll make it feel like something so should she um mount where should she mount the hardware like right up you know because she has these beautiful wood beams like close to the wood beams you know we usually do about halfway between the top of the window and the ceiling and then we like uh simple iron rods and i'm a fan of the sort of no pleats they're a little softer you know with rings you know rather than a valence or anything like that and then you just pull them across because it's you don't need bypass rods because you could still support it in the middle between the two and then we would do um probably about a uh, we usually do a rod that's about three quarters of an inch thick something like that or a little bit less five eighths to three quarters when they get too big they just feel kind of clunky so there's something where they feel like hardware like door hardware like like smaller skinnier handles there's a bunch of places you could just buy them online or like french return or something yeah french return yeah we bought uh we did a lot of French returns. I think it's out of, uh, out of, uh, I'll think of the name of the place, but I think it was out of near Santa Barbara or something. We have a great French return. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Do you, but do you, sorry, I'm going to ask you all the very specific questions about these drapes, just so that she has her answer, even though we, we want her to address the problem outside. Do you think she needs like a double rod where she's got shears on the back and maybe another panel on the front, or does she just need the shears? It depends on how much light's really coming in. What we often do is we use a lot of uh, natural linen, like a Libico linen that's kind of translucent, you know, where you can see through it, where you can get light through it. And often we'll just self-line it, right? You don't really want to cut the light too much because it feels a little dead. So we have west-facing windows across the whole back of our uh, cabin. You know, same exact situation. We have a, a thin kind of Libico linen that we double line, put on these rods. And if you're sitting in there, like in the back room and the light's coming in, you can pull the rods closed. It softens it. So you still get light. You still feel like the light's coming in, but you're not getting blasted with that harsh light. Got it. So I would I would probably make it just translucent. If she if she doesn't need blackout, I would probably just do a translucent kind of fabric that the light can come through. Got it. Yeah, because linens, you know, it's heavier than a sheer, but it's not opaque. Yeah, a, a sheer might not be enough there, just because of that west sun kind of blasting in. It might be just too not enough. But a linen, uh, a doubled up linen would be nice. And then should the Roman shades be at the same height as the I would rod? put the top of them at the same height as the rod. That way it connects visually around. And then uh, because the windows, I think, are at 6'8", the ceiling looks like it's 8'6", or something. There's about 18 inches or 12 inches in between. 
That way you can have some of the uh, drape stack above the window and not block the light when it's pulled all the way up. So it's more of a decorative thing. That's how I would approach that. And then what about the width of the panels on the wall? I'm telling you, I'm going to ask you all the questions. Liz is laughing at me. Um, so, okay, what typical width do you do? Like three times the window size for your panels, twice? Like what? I think we typically do. Yeah, I, we don't usually. We usually do it a little bit less, like three, like two times. I think they're two, two, two and a half times. Yeah, two times. Because if you go three times, it's just too much drape and there's not a lot of stacking room. So if you, okay. if, it, Got it. if those windows are so nice that when it's morning, you want that thing completely open. And if it's got too much stack on it, it's the, the light's not going to come through right. Got it. And then you right. want something with a really easy, we would use iron rings up on the top and just, okay. you know, have a simple thing to pull. Um, right. And that's because somehow like one and a half, it doesn't work because it just feels too tight you know i think we might have one and a half on part of ours in the back because 99 percent of the time they're they're open so we didn't want to block the windows but if you you just want to sort of see what that thing looks like and then some of our clients like pleats so they all stay even when they go straight up and down i don't like pleats i like just you know just folding them or just letting it flow it just feels more natural to me but a lot of a lot of people you know like it to be perfect when you open and close it yeah. But our patina look is more, you know, softer Relax. than that. Relax. And you want them just, you're going to make them a little shorter if they're linen because they're going to stretch a little. And you just want them to brush the floor just a touch. Okay. That's a great tip. All right. I think that's all my technical questions. Liz, Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was really thorough. That was awesome. I mean, she has to be very happy with your questioning. So thank you for doing <laughs> that. You know what? We don't want to leave any stone unturned. <laughs> I th I just find that drapery is a very comp like once you get into all of the specifics it is a very complicated puzzle sometimes and there are many many options and so you know we want to get Kelly her answers part of what happens with all these things is there are for everything there's millions of options so many options but nearly all of them are bad and so what you want to do is just <laughs> Nick knows them. it's my it's my thing. I always say, why is everything so ugly? You you just want to sort of filter through so you've got a lesser batch of things to look at. I would often just you know how you're looking for sofas and you're looking for chairs and you're looking for stuff and you're looking through the same catalogs uh, on and on and on. And I've just created just anytime I find something, I'll just make an edited list of a vendor of all the stuff I like, and I just forget about the rest because I'm never going to like it. I'm not going to, if I don't like it now, I'm not going to like it in a year from now. Sure. You're not going to talk yourself into it. Yeah. I'm not going to talk myself into it. And you don't even want to show a client that because you're not going to like it. You know, you want to help them pick just the good stuff. But that's the key is, you know, grapes and swags and you know, you could look at 50 different kinds of balances for that room, but mm -hmm. you know, all 50 of them would be wrong because it's the wrong idea. Well, it seems like your your approach is like, sometimes the simplest is the right answer. You know, like just have them all the same height, just have the Roman shades and the drapery. What happens sometimes is people uh, overthink everything and you're not designing the drapes, you're designing a room. So you want to think about everything as part of the whole. 
And so you'll have a lot of uh, clients or anybody who's doing anything get uh, mono-focused on that little piece of it. And you always want to, you know, understand the detail, but back up to the big picture. That's, that's the, a, tricky, a tricky part of design is because there's so many little mini things. And if you, if you think of every little thing, you end up walking into a room and your eye just goes to every little thing in the room. You, you've seen things that look like that. Everything's special. Everything's wonderful. Everything's perfect. Everything's a thing. Just makes your head explode. Rooms aren't big enough for that many ideas. It's a great lesson to end on, though. The big picture. Y'all really excel at that. You've built your incredible farm, both farms. And so wise words. Well, can you tell everyone where they can find you and follow you? And obviously, everyone's going to have to tune in for our next conversation with Brooke and Layla. So I wanted to talk about one other thing. Just just the idea of trying to pass stuff on just because Nick's here. Just trying to kind of take the things that you've learned. I mean, we write books and we try to share that, but it's been interesting to try to help, to, to try to take the ideas that we've I've learned over doing all this stuff and to get Nick up on it, to ramp him up, to be able to, to see it in the same way. It, it sometimes, you know, it's hard, you know, I can do it with sometimes people that work for me, but they don't usually have the same level of interest in the specifics of it all. And so that's been really fun for me to to watch that happen and to be able to sort of pass jobs off to him and have him just kind of do them and have me just kind of look in every now and then and say, yeah, that seems great. So that's been a cool way to approach things. But anyway, for uh, where to find us, Brooke is the queen of social media. So over at Velvet and Linen, you can see the sort of daily life stuff. And if you go to Patina Home and Garden, that's the store. And my architecture has been relegated to the back of the store. So you have to dig around a little to, in the Patina Home and Garden website to find the architecture and the interior design stuff. But we've got plenty of things to do here. So we're, we're happy to be in the back of the store. Well, yes, I'm sorry. I, we had a whole outline uh, to talk about generational design and we, we, we spent so much time talking everywhere else, we never even got there. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, Nick, where can they find you? You can find me at the same place. Luckily, I am a Gianetti and I get to be a part of Gianetti Home. But yeah, the, the best place to find all the work that we work on together is through like Velvet and Linen. All of the, we've been doing a lot of um, photography for our some projects coming up, I'm very excited about. And that's all been kind of spattered with getting little bits and pieces of that through those accounts yeah you see it on nick's instagram but we're looking at a, another book coming down the road on uh patina meadow exciting yeah that'll be something new well we'll put it in our calendars when it's announced so thank you all so much for chatting with us we can't wait to talk to brooke and layla next week so Oh, they're much better. So much, there's so much more fun. Nah. <laughs> there's so much to talk about that we had to have two episodes. So No, this is perfect. We're going to bring up the Airstream. Oh, yeah, so it's going to be great mm -hmm. now. So talk about you. the animals, the, yeah, the store. <laughs> Lots of ground to cover. Very cool. Well, thank you all so much. Thank you. Well, thank this you. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy, happy decorating. decorating.